0: Now, mind you, this was this was late '90s, um, so not not quite present day, but um, still fresh in my mind. Um, my father was a pastor at four Methodist churches. He had a four church charge, and they were all white. Um, and he invited a black man into a, a service, um, and it was a big hymn sing where all the churches got together. And um, the next, either that night or the next day, a guy calls my dad up and says, how dare you let a GDN into our church? And uh, wanted to fire my dad on the spot. Um, and so I have seen racism, not not even below the surface in the church in my lifetime. Um, however, I think because of politics and the way that the everything has been so manipulated, that that has caused a dividing wedge between the church. And one of the books that we had read um, in the culture class, they come to the conclusion that uh, a white atheist and a black atheist has more in common than a white Christian and a black Christian as far as um, uh, as far as their beliefs and lifestyle and things like that. Um, which I find I found to be crazy. But um, I think I think there's there's a couple different ways that we can look at at this situation because like if if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, And when I say that, I'm not talking just like Pentecostal, holy rollers, you know, rolling on the floor kind of thing. I'm talking about we are filled with the fullness of God. Um, And I meet another brother or sister who also is filled with the fullness of God. I've met people from Liberia. We have nothing in common. Right. And we become instant blood brothers. Like there's nothing that's going to get between us. And I would trust him with my family. And we would fight and die for one another, you know, um, because we both share the, the spirit of God within us. And so because of that, um, I think that, A, the church is lacking uh, people being filled with the fullness of God. Um, I think that um, it's, it's more than a political issue or a race issue. I think because we have turned church into kind of a, a country club of sorts, a, a nice fun club we can belong to. Um, And then we abide by the bylaws, whether it's a a Democratic, a more Democratic church or a more Republican church. We then have these bylaws that we can't go against um, versus, I'm not saying that's everybody, but I think that there's the reason why we have these problems is because people just are a part of a club. They're not filled with the fullness of God and earnestly seeking after God with everything they have.
1: Welcome back to Mind the Gap. Today, we have a guest on here that is actually a fellow student with Aunt Alicia, and I'm going to let her do the introductions.
2: Well, yeah, today we have um, Phil Morris. He goes to school with me at Bethany Global University. He's a grade higher than me, but um, he was on campus this past year with his wife and his children, so I got to know them very well. Um, And I thought it would be cool for us to have a conversation with him. So Phil, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, If you just want to give us a little bit like about um, just yourself, your testimony, maybe even like what led you to BGU.
0: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. Um, So uh, I guess as far as my testimony goes, um, you know, it's sometimes it's kind of hard to pinpoint your moment of salvation, right? Because you have the time when you go before God and you say, I, I give you my everything, um, but then it takes a while sometimes for, uh, for it to click, you know, and it takes some time for some of the old habits to die out and things like that, and uh, I-, I originally, I think I was about 15 years old, um, uh, got out of a rock concert, and I was in a hotel room, and I was dealing with a lot of uh, depression and anxiety and things like that. Um, and I just remember telling the Lord, I said, Lord, if I said I'm broken, um, but if there's any way that uh you can use me, uh, I need help. I'm yours, you know. Um and um I I it was a transform a transformative moment for sure. Um, but I had a lot from my past, a lot of trauma from my past that still was there that had not been dealt with. And so it took a few years really to, to get, to get to a point where, um, and had to work through some of that and the Lord did a mighty work in me. Um, then my daughter, my daughter was born, um, and that sparked up some PTSD. Um, some, I started having nightmares and some different flashbacks of things that, um, that had happened that I had closed out of my, I had closed out, you know, from, from my memory. Um, and my doctors say that sometimes when you have a kid, your protective parent instinct kicks in and, uh, starts to bring some of that up. And so I had a whole nother battle of PTSD I had to deal with. Um, and the Lord miraculously healed me from that. Um, and so I was crippled by that. My wife had to drive me places. Um, everything was just a mess. And, um, and, and there was a, a, a moment in the middle of that mess where I was dealing with suicide and, um, I was afraid someone was going to hurt my family. And so I got a gun. Um, but then that gun became a temptation. And so I would stare at that gun for maybe man, 20 minutes, just wanting. Cause I mean, every night, every single night I was having night terrors. Um, and, uh, I couldn't drive. I couldn't do things cause my chest would close in with anxiety and, uh, I just wanted the suffering to stop. And there was a speaker, um, that I was listening to and he had made the comment. He said, man, if you can have heaven and everything that God has promised us in heaven, your friends, your family, there and no sickness, no pain. you got a mansion, that kind of thing. Uh, no suffering. Um, but Jesus wasn't there. Or God wasn't there. Would you be satisfied? And he says, Be honest. And of course, as a Christian, you know, nobody ever wants to say yes. But in that moment, I had to, I had to be honest to myself. said, Look, I just want the suffering to end. Um, I, w- I think I would be satisfied. Um, and he said, then the, then the speaker says, Then you don't love God, you just love his stuff. And it hit me that, wow, maybe the my biggest problem wasn't my depression or my anxiety. Uh, maybe my biggest problem in life was that I didn't know how to love God. And that's not, that's, and that is in no way any kind of a put down to people who are dealing with depression and anxiety, of course, um, just for me personally, um, I realized I came to this realization that I just didn't quite know how to love God very well. And so, um, that, that became my, I, I don't know again, how you would describe it, like a come to Jesus moment, but it was definitely a, a turning point. Of sanctification in my life where I just said, God, I don't know how to love you. Could you just show me how to love you? And that was my prayer every day. And He did. And we started loving other people um, and started getting out of my own little bubble. And God started calling me to love the people I hated, um, which uh I, I really didn't, you know, uh, addicted, drug addicted. Um, you know, uh I, I kind of come from uh kind of very lower class. Uh, white, um, family as far as, you know, poverty and stuff goes. And I just, I saw the underbelly of poverty. You know, you have the, the proud working class on the top where everybody's doing their best and struggling and doing, doing good. But at the same time, you have the underbelly of it where you have a lot of the, um, you know, you have the violence and the rape and the drugs and the alcohol and murder and all that stuff that, that tends to come in that area. So, um, I hated, that and God says, "Well, I called you to love everybody, and you need to love the people that you you've been hating this whole time." And so we started to reach out to the addicted and to the the people who are impoverished and um, just loving people on um, the way God loves us. And uh, that's through that process I was healed of my PTSD. It was just like, man, one, one night uh, the Lord just touched me and I felt different and. It was while we were handing out hand warmers and blankets to homeless people on the streets of Erie, PA. And um, I just remember that night, I had no night terrors and no more anxiety. It just left. Everything was gone. And to this day, it's been years, man years and years. And I haven't had any night terrors or, or anxiety attacks or anything like that. So um, I became a pastor in 2017. And uh, I was associate pastor of a church and I was the head of an addictions ministry where we saw the Lord work miraculously. Um, And then uh, we had, we were baptizing whole families. Uh, We'd have one guy get saved. Um, We'd have, then he'd go and tell his family and then uh, they'd all want to come to church and then they'd, they'd get saved. So we were baptizing whole families at a time And, uh, people needed discipled and we were really busy. I was working full time at a car dealership. Um, but we were seeing the Lord move. We saw, you know, this, this woman came back from the dead. Um, we saw, uh, people who were selling drugs, uh, leave the business, um, cold Turkey, you know, um, just people whose lives were so twisted and turned around and see God just redeem them. And so we're in the middle of all this. Um, and I had a dream. Where I was sitting across from my associate past, well, or from my head pastor, at the time, and uh, I said, "I got to go." And he said, "Where you got to go?" I said, "I don't know." <laughs> and I, uh, I woke up, and the Holy Spirit was just so thick in the room. The presence of God was there, and I said, "God, where do I need to go?" I just felt like the Lord placed on my heart Bethany Global University. Well, I had heard of it before, um, but we were not in a place financially. We were not in a place. Um, practically to leave and to pick up my family from Pennsylvania um, I had two kids at that time and uh, to move across the country um, I was needed here in Pennsylvania there's multiple ministries I was involved with and it was a shock to everybody um, when that happened um, but uh, I, at first I didn't I didn't really I listened to the dream but at the same time I thought well maybe okay. I had a weird piece of pizza that night, you know? <laughs> and uh, then my wife and I discussed it. We said, well, we definitely can't attend school there. Uh, it's just not feasible for us right now. Uh, maybe again, it maybe just say something weird. And that night we, when we had kind of come to a conclusion that night that uh, let's, just, let's just ignore it. I had a second dream that was very similar. Um, and, and the same thing happened where we're there and I was at a coffee shop and this little old lady picks me up in a car she starts driving me th- through the country. And, and I said, where are we going? And she goes, there's this school you got to go to. Um, and I don't know who the old lady is. Um, but she was, uh, she just was kind of, uh, just bent to get me to that college. Uh, and it was Bethany global university. And so I said, okay, God, I don't know why I got to go there, but maybe I'll just go and visit and just see maybe there's a professor I need to talk to, you know, something like that. And so, um, I I I had took a uh, a plane ticket, went out there, got a hotel room, and showed up on campus and I said god I'm here. I have no idea why I'm here, but I'm I'm willing to let you show me. And um we ended up I ended up taking a tour. Um I sat in on a uh, a professor's class it was Mel- I mean Alicia, you know Melanie. Um it was one of her classes. Um and uh in the class she says you know, uh, where they're talking about how there are two men that had two dreams. And, uh, the first dream was all the animals coming from the sky, you know, and, uh, saying, Hey, eat, eat of this. And there's like, well, it's unclean and don't call unclean what I've called clean. And then there's a man in the next city who had a dream says, go get that guy. And with the two of them obeying the two dreams, the Gentiles were welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. and so. Um, I said, well, God, I'm being obedient to the two dreams you gave me. What will you have me do? And I felt like the Lord kept pushing on my heart the whole time I was there that uh, if you're to walk in what I called you to walk in, you need to know this book like the back of your hands meaning the Bible. And So I said, OK, God, I'll study when I get home, but I can't be a student here. And all day long, I kept repeating over and over in my heart. And I was I was wrestling with the Lord. And so I got to my hotel room, I, I had called my pastor, told him what was going on. And his exact words were, he says, Phil, sounds like, you know, exactly what God's telling you to do. You better do it. And then my, I, I said, I can't do that. You know, I can't, I can't just up and leave everything, you know? Um, and then I called my dad and his exact words were, Phil, sounds like, you know, exactly what God's called you to do. You better go do it. And so I felt like, man, this is starting to sound like confirmation, you know, I was like man, <laughs> uh, I can't do this, God, what are you doing? And so I said, God, uh, I'm going to be talking to my wife, uh, tomorrow night. And, uh, I need to know that. I know that I know that you're telling me to do this. I can't go by a couple of dreams and just this whispers in my heart. I said, I got, I have to know for sure before I uproot my family and leave this ministry that we started and all this stuff. And, uh, 20 minutes later, I get a call from London, England, and, uh, my, my good friend, Josh, um, was in London and we were talking and he told me, he says, he says, I had a dream, uh, that we were studying the Bible in Minneapolis or Minnesota. And I thought it was funny cause I had to look on a map to find Minnesota. Um, how does someone in London know where Minnesota is? And, uh, but I said, but he said, I, we had a dream and he's, and he's telling me how I was being stubborn. And that him and God, it was like uh, we were studying the Bible, me and him were studying the Bible in Minnesota, but but he was trying to convince me um that God wanted to restore me and provide for me, just like he did with Job at the end of the book of Job. And so, in that, um I just fell to the ground because I was like, God, uh, you gave this man a dream around the world uh that basically was confirming I was being stubborn and that I need to go study in Minnesota. And so we picked up our whole family. Um, Lord provided miraculously um, as a job. He gave me a church to work at in northern Minneapolis um, where I served for the last two years, uh, Lutheran Church of the Master um, up in Brooklyn Center. Um, and so I've been, I was a pastor there uh, working with the youth department and uh, went through George Floyd, COVID. And uh, the, the riots and stuff and we had some we had some nights um, where we were in the middle of the riots and just the Lord opened up doors of opportunity to minister to people there. And so uh, yeah so now that's kind of catching up to now where my wife and I are uh, getting ready to do our internship through Bethany Global University. Um, we uh, every, every student has to go through internship and ours is a 16month internship uh, to Costa Rica. And it, the Lord has provided miraculously for that. Uh, we've been working hard all summer, uh, trying to raise support, and we had to raise over one hundred and five thousand dollars. And the Lord provided that um, we, in one summer, guys. We raised over one hundred and four wow, uh, thousand dollars. And praise the Lord. And uh, yeah, yeah, and it was through the weirdest ways, um, but. Uh, we're just falling after what God has called us to do. And in that, um, that, that kind of catches you up to today where we're leaving, uh, in a few weeks and we're packing up, we're getting everything together. And, uh, we're saying our goodbyes and giving hugs out and loving on people and just, uh, getting ready to go. So, and we have three kids now. So we had one kid in college. So
2: yes, I got to see him. <laughs> When he was first born and up until, I mean, I guess we left for the summer. He's so adorable. So I was going to ask you, um, well, first off that, like, I didn't know so much of that, like, of, like your story. Like, it's just really interesting having this conversation and like hearing, um, because I've known like bits and pieces here and there, but Yeah. yeah, God has really taken you through so much and given you so much confirmation when it's come to like BGU and just like, you know, where you've gotten, and life even in your relationship with him. So that's just awesome. So were you were, so when you and Bethany got married, were you already like Christians like following after Christ like fully, or did that happen like throughout like at some point during your marriage?
0: So um I thought I was following the Lord well, you know? Um I was so I was uh we met when I was a baby, you know, we've known each other most of our lives on and off um, she she grew up in the church that my dad got saved in, and so anytime we'd come back to visit our hometown we'd see her and so when I moved back to my hometown of Cory Pennsylvania um, she had definitely grown up and I noticed you know um and before she was always this goofy kid but man she she grew up in a very beautiful young lady and I I took notice and started to let her know I was taking notice. Um, and so we, we had gotten married pretty young. I mean, I was, uh, 23. And so she would have been, yeah, 21. And so, uh, so we got married, but, um, I had still had some things I had to wrestle through. Um, and I think the good way to put this is, you know, when we talk about the Christian walk, there's hypocrisy in in this whole like, I think there's like a blatant hypocrisy of like, I'm not really walking with God, but I I'm telling everybody you have to do X, Y, and Z versus this immaturity hypocrisy, put it that way, right? Like we're we're still young in our faith, we're immature, we're not, we haven't fully, we haven't grown into. What God's called us to, and so there is hip, hip, hypocrisy in some of the things we do, where we we know the good we ought to do, and we don't do it. And sometimes we we realize, man, there's some things in my life I got to get rid of, and it's still there. And so um, it was after we were married that I had really fully come to um, that that point where again it was like I, I realized, wow, God, I don't really know how to love you, um, and so at the beginning of our marriage, we both were following God. We really were trying to, um, but we just had to come to that breaking point, And that was after we were married. So, um, and we all, we all get, you know, when we get married, we get in relationships. None of us have everything perfectly together, but I had so much that had to be worked through that through my, through the God redeeming me. Um, I think she's always, my wife has always been strongly following the Lord and trusting in God. And she's a source of strength for me. Um, but when she saw the work that God has done in me, I saw, I think, I think the trans, uh, more or less, I was the the person that needed to change, where she, um, she needed to heal because I I I wasn't I wasn't in a good place when we got married, um, so anyhow, um, just just putting that out there as far as our relationship went, um, she was more suffering because of my PTSD and trauma. Um, she had a brand new baby and I had, again, having these night terrors, having these anxiety attacks and we're newlyweds and she's going to take care of this, this, uh, you know, this new husband is starting to freak out. Um, and so, uh, she took on such a large burden right at the get to go. The Lord got her through and the Lord touched my heart and healed me. Um, and so that was kind of a good, that was a, not a good experience, but that was like a, a fire, you know that that we had to go through together as a married couple. And at the coming out of the end of it, we are the stronger for it. We're the happier for it. We're more blessed um, because it's kind of like once you go through something like that together, I know she's not going to leave me. You know, you have that confidence in your wife because man, there's plenty of times she could have left me and no one would have blamed her. Um, I know. So I have this confidence in my wife that she hears from the Lord. She knows the Lord. She loves the Lord. Um, and then once the Lord changed and, you know, made me well, um, I was able to lead my family better. I was able to step into that role of of being, you know, a man and, and uh, loving her um, by leading and taking that weight off of her shoulders and saying, hey, whether we sink or we swim, it's on me. And uh, you don't have to, you know, you don't have to take on this burden of worrying that um, we're going to fall apart if if she doesn't make the right call. You know, I was able to step into that, that godly position and, and love her better. And so, yeah, we were definitely stronger through it. I would never want to go back and do it again. That's for sure, though.
1: You you said that you specifically asked God to show you how to love him better. And I'm curious, would you say that he used your wife to teach you practical ways of doing that just to one other person, but let alone, you know, transfer that over to him?
0: I mean, every day, I think God shows me a little bit how <laughs> to love him better through my wife. Um, but. I think through that whole process, the the, the lear, learning how to love God better is like, I think I can't remember if it was Jose or Amos. At the end of it, um, there's a talk. There's a prophetic um, verses about Jesus, but there's this verse, and I wish I had the I don't have the the reference right here. But he says, "I'll heal you from your backsliding," and so there is a part of learning that comes through experience of uh, seeing how other people love well and imitating that, which is godly to do. Um, But then there's also like digging through the Bible. And when the Bible says, Hey, if you have, if you have what, three tunics and your brother has none, give him a tunic, you know, well, there was a huge storm up in Erie and I had collected probably about a hundred blankets and a big winter storm was hitting, and there's a lot of homeless nearing. So we just collected blankets and handed them out and got hand warmers and handed them out. You know, we start. I started just doing what the Bible simply said to do and uh, just taking it at face value, saying, okay, well, the Bible says to do this, so let's do this. Um, the Bible says not to do this, so let's try not to do this. And not always getting it right, but um, having the right intentions of just wanting to be obedient to God. Um, and so through my wife, um, I did see several moments in, in that walk. Um, I'll give you one example. We had a young man who was addicted to, um, to some drugs and we did the met, we did the research, we called the doctors and the specific drug he was on. Um, he wasn't going to die from coming off of it, but it was going to be extremely uncomfortable. And so I said to him, I said, well, let me take, I'll take a week off of work. And let's go find a hunting cabin somewhere and get you off this, you know, get you get, get through your withdrawal. And my wife said, don't you dare. I'll take the kids over to my parents' house and you can have our home. He needs to be comfortable. Right. So for my wife to sacrifice her own comfort at her own home. And to take the kids over to her parents' house for a whole week while me and my friend um, wrestled through the throes of addiction. Um you know, there were moment many moments like that, that my wife definitely shined out, and I and I saw God's love in her. And I think the more we see God's love in each other, um, and how God loves us by telling us to love each other, and and showing us ways that we can, we do see ways that we love, we should love God. Um, whether it's the reflect the the reflection of that, or just the cause and effect of when God loves somebody, you see the, the outpouring of what happens after. And, um, yeah, it gives you kind of this, that building, it starts building that relationship of the back and forth of the conversation, the love, and just the relationship with him. So.
2: I,
1: I do think that it's difficult these days and maybe it's always been this difficult because humanity seems to never really change in its general nature unless God is involved. Um, but for me, it really took me a while to really see what godly love was because that was so different than what the world called love and love to like <laughs> yeah. romantic love and love to your fellow man. You know, there's different versions of love if you want to go into like agape and storge and all, all, all the different yeah. kinds. But um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit on how you learned the difference between what the world calls love other than, you know, you take the Bible at face value. But I mean, for me personally, and I know a lot of people, they read the Bible and maybe there's a seed of, of doubt, like, oh, I don't believe everything that I read, but also it's hard to read that and really see how you can practically apply that in modern life, unless you have a true theological understanding and knowledge and you go deep in the word and you really research it and ask your pastor and go to church. But for people who are just opening up their Bible, it's, you know, for the first time, it's hard to really understand what it's saying a lot of times, especially in practical versions, especially in modern times. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how you learned the difference between godly, biblical, truthful love and what the world calls love and how that differentiates between maybe the love for your wife and then the love for your kids and then the love for your fellow man, where there would be, uh, there would be differences between those, but it would still all be biblical, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, first I'll tell you a short story. Um, When we were working with the addiction ministry, um, I had a conversation with a theologian and he was the head of the theology department at some one of the one of the ministries uh, in the area, a well-known ministry. And uh, we were talking about maybe doing uh, some work together to help some of the addicted in the area. And he asked us, "What theology does a person have to have for for us to to do ministry with them?" And um, we were very much an open ministry where we worked with any really Christian denomination um, or non-denomination. Like we weren't, we weren't, um, I say evangelical, we we will say evangelical Christian denomination, meaning that, um, it wasn't like, uh, Latter-day Saints or, or Jehovah's Witness or anything like that. But, you know, if you were the Apostles Creed Bible believing Christian, um, I didn't care how you baptize somebody. Um, if you were pre-trib, post-trib, you know, reformed or not, whatever. Um, the The uh, person suffering from addiction, um, as long as they learn how to love God and love each other, um, any church can use that person. And then, if you need, you know, teaching them your own doctrinal truths, um, going deeper than that, um, that's between you as a pastor and this person that's coming into your church. Um, no, no drug addict is going to be sitting there shooting up heroin and saying, oh man, uh, should we baptize babies or not? You know what I mean? Um, They need to know the foundation, which Jesus told us, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, right, and love the neighbor as yourself. Um, And and this theologian told me, he says, well, that's kind of low-hanging fruit, don't you think? And it just hit me that, man, so many times we get caught up in theology, and I'm not anti-theology. I love theology, guys. But what I'm saying is sometimes we get caught up in the discussions and the arguments and the, the deep things that we have to go back to the Greek and the Hebrew for. And uh, we, we, if we can understand it in our mind, and it seems very simple, like when we read love is patient, love is kind, love is long suffering, all these things, right? Um, We say, okay, I get it. Now I got to move on to the next difficult thing theologically. Um, But really if you spend your whole life trying to master Being patient and kind, long-suffering, to to uh, go, you know, uh, hating what is evil, rejoicing what's good, you know, go, you know, that Corinthians passage that everybody talks about in the weddings and things. Um, You don't need a theology major. Uh, I'm sure having a a, a good understanding of the Greek and the Hebrew would help you tear that that passage apart. However, Jesus was speaking plainly to plain people. And when he tells us to be patient and be kind, um, and and again, I could I don't have that passage in front of me, but you you all know what this, what I'm referring to. Um love never fails. You know, we it's not you don't sin. It's not selfish, right? It doesn't hold on to it doesn't hold on to other people's wrongs. Um when we look at love the way that the the world sees, we see like almost if you ever took a picture and inverted the colors, right? It's almost like the negative of love. It is selfish. It is um, that you want a quick gratification instead of um, patient, right? (laughs) Um, It's not long-suffering. The second the person you're with causes you any kind of displeasure, all your friends tells you, oh, you got to get that negativity out of your life. Drop that man or drop that woman, you know? Um, It it doesn't suffer long with somebody. Um, And so... I think if if somebody were to, um, there has to have be a bit of faith involved in the Bible because, um, I think if you were to to give it a shot, right? Like almost like if I see a chair, I'm a I'm a bigger dude. If I see a chair and I'm not so sure about it, if it's going to hold my weight, I might be a little hesitant, put a little bit of weight on it and see if it holds. But it's going to be a little bit before I'm going to put my full weight. Onto that chair. I think the same thing is true when someone is very skeptical about God in the Bible. Um, I think that if they were to just give him a chance and put a little weight on his promises, then they would be able to see that he holds his word. Um, and so when we look at uh, like love, for example, the way the culture has, we, there's a reason why we have the song, What is Love? Baby, Don't Hurt Me, right? <laughs> um, because the way the world paints love destroys us. It destroys families, destroys cultures, destroys hearts. It's just ugly. Um, but we're addicted to this shallow version of it. However, when we look at the biblical form of love and we start reading through this and you really think about it, man, I wish somebody was patient and kind to me. I wish somebody would stay with me even through my mistakes and blunders I wish somebody wouldn't keep track of every time I do something wrong and throw it back in my face all the time. Right. We want that desperately. We're craving it desperately. And at the same time we realize our mistakes. Wow. How many times have I not been kind to someone I said I loved? How many times have I not been patient? You know, and that goes, you know, there's the surface level of relationships in general, but like you, you there's an appropriateness to that. So me being patient and kind and long-suffering with my wife um, is 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 similar to with my kids. However, it's within the context of that relationship. Um, so, with my wife, um, being like not being selfish might mean um, I'll do the dishes so she doesn't have to. Uh, but where my kids, uh, not being selfish, might be I put down the TV and spend time with them. You know what I mean? So there's. There's practical things that we can do with this, but if you would just put a little bit of weight of your life onto the scriptures and see that it holds up, it holds up, you begin to be able to put a little more weight on, and more weight on, and more weight on, and realize, wow, this can hold my entire life.
2: And there's also is-
1: something, sorry to interrupt you, I just no, was good. thinking as you were talking, there's also something to be said about the connection with the Holy spirit. Once you're reading your Bible and you have a relationship with Jesus and, um, you know, you know, your heavenly father in my life, there's something to be said about in the moments within relationships, there's something to be said about a still small voice coming into your mind of like, you know, you might have the heart set of not being selfish anymore, but we still have that human nature and that, You know, moments of foolishness or selfishness or whatever. But, you know, like you said, put the TV remote down and turn it off and spend time with your kids. There's something about in that moment that there's a thought that pops in your head that's like, oh, I should do this. And that, that's to me, feels like the Holy Spirit speaking to you in those moments. But that is, you get educated on that voice by reading the Bible. Would you, would you say that is, you know, kind of how that works for you or is that just my own personal experience?
0: I would say, I mean, the Lord definitely speaks through his word, right? It's the word of God. Um, and uh, I think that that's where there is, there is so much in that relationship that comes from scripture. But I also would say that, you know, the Bible tells us my sheep hear my voice. And um, there are moments where I have been in ministry, um, whether to my family or to others, where we would be in big trouble if I I didn't know the Lord was speaking or what the Lord was saying when he was speaking. And now I get, depending on what theological camp you come from, some people are like, well, the Lord stopped talking as soon as the Bible finished up revelation. you know. Um, And I understand the dangers of some people who say, well, the Lord's talking to them and they spout up nonsense that doesn't match scripture. And so some theological camps put up barriers to protect their people from that. But I would say personally for my walk with God that um, there is this relationship of the past, present, and future where I look to the Bible and that the, the word of God tells me how God's been faithful in the past. It gives us um, this long resume of the relationship between God and man. And it, and it definitely pours into my day to day. Um, It pours into my present and it helps me understand my past and it gives me hope as I walk forward in my future. Um, But in that, it also shows me this God that doesn't stop talking um, and he still speaks to his people and through different ways. And so um, I know I see a lot of memes that say, well, people never open their Bible, but they want to hear from God. Well, I open my Bible and I hear from God um, through different situations. So when, I think that's that's definitely a huge part because a relationship, um, Matt Harbour, he's one of our teachers at the school. He says, do you, you know, we were talking about the study of knowledge. How do you know that you know something? And the definition that, that, that we learned was like, you know something once you've wrestled with it and made it your own. And I find that parallel with um, uh, Jacob, right? When he wrestled with God and it broke his hip. God, God wants people he can wrestle with and make his own. And what do you say when after, oh, I've done all these miracles, I healed the sick and the demon possessed and all this. And God says, I never knew you, right? Um, has God wrestled with us and made us his own yet? And so in that, I say that relationship with God, um, I have to hear his voice. I have to, because, um, and, I, and I'll, I'll and i say, we went through a season of having that trial period of learning to hear the voice of God. And it sounds weird saying trial period, but, we just went through this season of life where we got put in these somewhat dangerous situations at times. Um, believe it or not, addiction ministry is not always the safest um, or cleanest place to be. Um, but there are situations to where, um, you know, the Bible talks about the peace of God that guides us and leads us. And there was times where we had situations come up. It was like, we kind of needed a yes or no answer and I didn't have any earthly wisdom to help me with this. It was, you know, I didn't, and I didn't want to go by gut feelings because like if I do things my way, they get screwed up pretty quick. And so I said, Lord, I need to know what to do. And there are situations that uh, in the natural looked pretty logically sound, but uh, the Lord gave me no peace in those, in that, just dis- in going that direction. And I talked to my wife and she prayed about it. She didn't have any peace about it. And, and then there is another direction that didn't, that seemed like a little bit like, whoa, uh, uh, this is a little scary, but, um, we can trust the Lord will get us through it. And then we both had like this deep peace about it. And so we started kind of making decisions based on that. Um, and then, then the Lord gave us the gifts of seeing the outcome of those decisions. Whereas, um, for example, um, and I don't want to get into specifics because, you know, I want to respect the people that we've worked with and loved, you know, um, but there were situations to where people wanted to do ministry with us and they look like a great candidate. Um, and then, uh, people were pushing me to join up with another ministry, but then after a year, um, or so we saw this scandal break out, or these things happen that would have destroyed the people, you know, the ministry and the people we were working with, And so we realized, wow, I'm glad that we listened to God or what we thought God, you know, we were very humble about it. We still are. I think God's telling us this, but we want, but we also know that maybe we're hearing things wrong. Um, But in that process, we kind of, you know, we realize there's, there's a few voices, really. There's your internal voice, which is you. Right. Um, And then I call it like the voice of your parents, which is um, depending on where, how you grew up, sometimes it's a critical voice or whatever, but it's kind of like that, that voice in the back, back of your head that just kind of, um, I don't know how to put it. It's not quite you, but it's like the accumulation of all your experiences. What are other people going to think? What are other people going to say? You know, that kind of, that voice. Is back there. Maybe it's a self conscious kind of voice. Um, And then there's the enemy that um, wants to um, kill, steal, and destroy. And there's the Lord. And then there's the other people around you, right? And so it's not like there's a hundred different kinds of voices, but there's a few different kinds of voices that can be talking to you. And so in that peaceful feeling um, of the Lord giving us peace, to make these decisions and then showing himself to be true. Um, Not everybody has that to to look back on and say, oh, I see how that situation turned out. But we did. Um, We got to see, wow, this is what the voice of the Lord sounds like. Um, And it sounds different from my voice. It sounds different from the voice of the enemy, even though the enemy works in whispers too. But usually whatever he has to say does not sound anything like what God would have to say. And so, um, learning to ignore the voice of the enemy, um, even ignore the subconscious voice of what you think people are going to say, um, and challenge your own voice. Um, and then always be in the scripture because if, if what the, if what you feel in your heart and you're hearing the voice of the Lord inside that whisper inside your heart, if that doesn't match up with scripture, then you need to really Recalibrate and think, man. Maybe I'm not hearing God, you know, and maybe I need to. Well, not maybe you're not hearing God if He's challenging Scripture. Um, but um, there's that process of that we went through. That man, we were in the Word all the time, and we're, you know, we're making decisions and stepping out in faith. And again, it's like that chair. We put a little bit of weight on that to test it. And wow, this is this is God talking to us, and we can put more and more weight on it to where now. Once I hear that voice, I can put the weight of my entire family on it, not just the weight of me, but when I hear the voice of God talks, I can put the, the lives of my children and my wife and myself on that, knowing the Lord is speaking to us and we have to move now. And that has saved, that has saved us in several situations, and that has brought us so much joy in several situations because the Lord has opened up doors to us that we would have not even known about um, had we not been hearing the present day voice of God. Um, but again, that's not ignoring the scriptures. That's not saying that thus saith the Lord when I speak. It is the same as scripture. What I'm saying is that the Lord still speaks to his people. And um, we not. I'm not saying we have an obligation. I think we do to an extent, but the Lord wants to talk to us. Um, and um, we have this opportunity and this privilege to seek the Lord and find him. Seek and you shall find. Knock, the door will be open. You know, Um, And then once now that we're at this point in our relationship with the Lord, there is a sweetness. And it's not saying, oh, I have something you don't have, you know, or anything to people who struggle with this. But I can just tell you to keep pressing in because there is the sweetness that shows me that, man, there's so much more to God to be had.
1: And kind of switching gears here, but you were talking about the voice of God. And just just to mention that a little bit, something that I personally learned in my own walk recently from a Paul Washer sermon was um, you can learn a lot about the character of God from reading his word. And that teaches you a little bit more about how to hear his voice outside of that, too, and which voice to hear, because if you know someone's character, you know what kind of words they might say or what kind of actions they would do. And and the um, example he, he was using in that sermon was, um, you know, if my, if my uh, one specific friend he had, um, I think his name was Pablo in this scenario. He's like, if my friend Pablo came in here and asked me for the keys to my Jeep and I knew none, no other information other than he needed the keys to my Jeep, I would give it to him. And I would trust that he isn't going to wrap it around a tree or, or use it for some purpose that is, you know, going to get me in trouble or him in trouble or whatever, because I know his character. And he was making the point of when you read, when you read the Bible, when you're in your word, you can learn the character of God by reading these stories and what he said to people and that the fact that he never changes. And when you know that about him, and then you start being more sensitive to his voice and testing the spirit, as Jesus says, then it, it gets easier and easier. It's kind of like, um, it, it, in my head, it feels a lot like resistance training, whenever you're weight training, you know, whenever you first start, you're not going to start with a lot, but the more you do, the more your muscles grow and the more you learn how your body works, the more intuitive you get with how your movement is. And it's, it's, similar. It's similar to that. And, and you were talking about other voices too. And this is actually what I was curious about because I know Lisha mentioned to me before this interview that you were in a race and culture class. Is that correct?
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, oh yeah. We, uh, I took one of those, I think last semester was, that was our, that was our critical thinking class where we went through a critical thinking process of all the arguments or many of the arguments surrounding race and culture. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, um, she mentioned to me that she had a little bit of a conversation with you on that. And there was, um, some things that in, and I don't, you know, I want you to talk a little bit more about it, but from what I understood, there were some things that convicted you from what you grew up with. And I grew up in West Virginia and from what she told me, it sounded very similar to how I grew up. And when you're talking about voices, the voices of your parents, the voices of your community that you're growing up with, just kind of your experiences in general and what you think is truth, but then you learn something new and you kind of think, okay, maybe that's not quite the case um, here or, you know, as you learn something new. And I'm wondering, can you recall a few specific things you learned in that race and culture class that really felt like they were in conflict with what you learned or were conditioned to think growing up?
0: Um, well, I think there was some perspective changes that had to take place. Um, and I think with that perspective change, um, that challenged, uh, for example, like when you, um, it's not necessarily like I knew blatant racism, right? And I, granted, I grew up in the nineties and we redefined racism where before it was, was Hey, if someone's of a different color don't assume they're a terrible human being or don't assume all these things about them based on their skin color Um, judge a person by the character, not by their outward appearance. And then growing up even further into the two thousands where that got redefined. Um, And so I think that realizing why it got redefined, how it got redefined helped me personally, because I thought racism was just that. Um, But that, I also realized that coming from Appalachia, coming from a very poor community, and I started hearing these stories, I realized how much I had in common. Um, Where in the arguments though, this is, well, white people don't understand this, this and this because they don't know what it's like to grow up in in, in this environment where the police question your motives all the time. These things, I thought, well, actually, um, and not to say that my experience is the same in any way, but, you know, but I think there are some similarities that we can hold on to and understand each other with. I was just surprised how many similarities, just in being impoverished, um, connected some dots for me. Um, and I realized, like, wow, um, uh, where I knew racism, the let's say the 90s definition of racism, where um, you judge a person based on their color was wrong. And a lot of the people around me, uh, man, it was like, you know, the kids were listening to the Klan music on the bus where there was like literal, like the Klan makes their own music. And it was strictly like, again, in your face, Nazi racism stuff. I saw plenty of that in my life. Um, and I knew that was wrong. But I think the biggest thing that kind of challenged me was um, just – I guess a perspective shift between um, understanding what my brothers are going through um, and having a better understanding of some of the suspicions that people put on them. And, and I guess the class challenged some of the thoughts of like, well, if they would only just do this, this, and this, right. If only black people would just do blah, 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 then they wouldn't have these problems. So it's their fault. Well, it's a little more complicated than that. And I think there is definitely an individual responsibility that we all have no matter what color we are to step out of our circumstances and grow and closer to God and to one another. But I also think we, you know, I was challenged in realizing that man there is a whole lot to this that I was so ignorant of because uh, I was surrounded by, you know, 98% white people.
3: Hi, I'm Malaika, by the way. I haven't, uh, I didn't get a chance to introduce myself in the beginning, but I'm here. Um, I'm one of the hosts as well. Oh, thank you. um, But it's crazy listening to like your perspective on the class and like what you learned from it, because I feel like each one of us has gone through our own like similar Um, experiences when it comes to like perspectives on things like this, because no, I know like when I grew up, um, I grew up in this like little bubble where kind of like you said, the idea of in the 90s, you don't judge someone by their color. Um, I went to an international school, so I'm used to being around like so many different people from all over the world. And so I thought that, you know, the rest of the world was that way. But um, I did have experiences where like they kind of popped that bubble um and then i had to growing up and being a person of faith i had to go within myself and realize that um that doesn't change like who god says i am and that doesn't change um what that means i don't know if that makes sense like your identity in christ yeah my identity in christ was more important to me than um what these people thought of me based on a specific feature or um Characteristic of myself based on my culture, yeah. like that is not just who I am. Like I'm so much more than that. So just listening to you talk about that and explaining how you went through that thought process, I just find it like really like encouraging because I know some people. Um, it's very difficult to kind of sit through and work through, and I think it's difficult on all ends of um, these kind of situations.
1: And Phil, I was raised very uh, with a similar mindset. Um, you know. Like, just make good decisions. Like somebody has to step up and take personal responsibility and make good decisions. And I kind of grew up a little bit thinking that, you know, well, I had no advantages because of my skin color. But at the same time, uh, after some maturity, I realized that I had no disadvantages from my skin color either. And I ended up working in a job in the building industry, actually, working with a lot of older men. And I had a lot of accounts in West Virginia, like deep in West Virginia, where it's, yeah. you kind of go back in time <laughs> a little bit. Yeah. And, um, I had a lot of moments where, you know, my name is Kenisa. It's not a very white sounding name. (laughs) And almost every single person that sees my name before they meet me in that industry would like I'd I'd shake their hand, I'd meet them. And then they say, oh, I thought you were black. And they would they would whisper it almost as if like they were relieved and like pleasantly surprised that they got to work with another white person. And I even had someone my age, which I was surprised. I was kind of, uh, attributing it to an older generation and it was West Virginia, whatever, leave it alone. But I actually had someone my age who was from Pittsburgh. Um, uh, whenever they met me, they said, oh man, I thought you were going to be another affirmative action hire. And I found myself yeah. coming to a realization that you know, I maybe didn't, it wasn't like, oh, you're white. I'm going to give you extra privileges. But it was like, until you found out that I was white, I had to fight preconceived notions because you thought that I was black. And, and that's when it really opened my eyes to, you know, it's not just, it's not just blatant anymore. I mean, a lot of things are very under, under the surface, under, Underbelly, like you might say, like you know, it's yeah, aggressive almost. Level,
0: yeah, there's a surface level niceties, and then under the, just just below the surface, you know, you scrape the butter off the bread, and all of a sudden, you know, you get to the dry toast, and that's seldom pleasant.
1: Um, right, and what I would consider that being a, a heart, a heart set, or um, you know, where their heart is, and obviously, we talk about racism as um, a heart matter. But it's also, you know, a lot of when you're not in the church and you also are like, oh, this is just a terrible thing. I would never think this. I would never think that maybe it doesn't have anything to do with race, but there's a heart matter of you thinking some people are less than than others. So whenever you're getting into the Bible, it's this it's probably what I've found to be the most inclusive idea for everyone, you know, say every nation, every tongue will bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. It's that idea of we all get to come together and worship the same God who created everyone in their diversity. But when you're outside of the church and outside of the Bible and you talk about racism, it almost feels like um, a, a, a hill to die on or an ideology that you can grasp onto nowadays, especially after, I mean, you, you said you were um, in Minnesota when, you know, George Floyd riots were happening yeah. and everything like that. So I'm sure that really you know affected you in, in some way. I mean it affected all of us, but I wasn't even in the same city. So um it, it was it, it it was an eye opener, but it was also um a reminder that even in this idea that there are good things and bad things and we can agree like everyone can pretty much agree that everyone you know that has any kind of good head on their shoulders can agree that racism is wrong. But if you're not in the church, it's a different level for the church, it's a different level of wrong. It's a, it's a, it's a level of a heart set of looking at someone else, no matter what their skin color or even their ideology or their culture, or even their actions, looking at someone else and saying, I'm better than you because this, 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 and this, you know, we could even boil that down to the political landscape. I'm better than you because I'm a Republican or vice versa. I'm better than you because I voted Democrat. So it's like, yeah. A, a divisive thing that, um, you know, it, it, it's so many nuances and it takes so long to learn through. And I think, um, I, I think that's something that's really been, uh, educating America recently on how to, I, I don't know if you know, Jesus, then this isn't as much of a problem, but even still, I've no people in the church who, prejudice. So it's, it's, it's an amazing thing (laughs) that we have,
0: we have the opportunity to learn
1: these things.
0: Now, mind you, this was, this was late nineties. Um, so not, not quite present day, but, um, still fresh in my mind. Um, my father was a pastor at four Methodist churches. He had a four church charge and they were all white. Um, and he invited a black man into a, a service um, and it was a big hymn sing where all the churches got together. And, um, the next, you that night of the next day, a guy calls my dad up and says, how dare you let a GDN into our church and, uh, wanted to fire my dad on the spot. Um, and so I have seen racism, not, not even below the surface in the church in my lifetime. Um, however, I think because of politics, and the way that the everything has been so manipulated that that has caused a dividing wedge wedge between the church. And one of the books that we had read um, in the culture class, they come to the conclusion that uh, a white atheist and a black atheist has more in common than a white Christian and a black Christian, as far as um, uh, as far as their beliefs and lifestyle and things like that. Um, which I find I found to be crazy, but um, I think. I think there's there's a couple different ways that we can look at at this situation because, like, if if I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, and when I say that, I'm not talking just like Pentecostal holy rollers, you know, rolling on the floor kind of thing. I'm talking about we are filled with the fullness of God. Um, and I meet another brother or sister who also is filled with the fullness of God. I've met people from Liberia. We have nothing in common, right? And we become instant blood brothers. Like there's nothing that's going to get between us. And I would trust him with my family and we would fight and die for one another, you know, um, because we both share the, the spirit of God within us. And so because of that, um, I think that a, the church is lacking, uh, people being filled with the fullness of God. Um, I think that, um, it's, it's more than a political issue or a race issue. I think because we have turned church into kind of a a country club of sorts, a a nice, fun club we can belong to, um, and then we abide by the bylaws, whether it's a a democratic, a more democratic church or a more republican church, we then have these bylaws that we can't go against. um, Versus, I'm not saying that's everybody, but I think that there's the reason why we have these problems is because people just are a part of a club, they're not filled with the fullness of God. And earnestly seeking after God with everything they have, um, then then you follow the whatever the doctrine or dogma is of of Republicans or Democrats, and then even the subgroups of those things, uh, even down to the music. You know, we'll divide over everything. We'll divide over politics, and then after politics, it'll be uh, your denomination. And after denomination, it'll be your your music styles with like contemporary or worship and then it'll be oh did you have tattoos or you know we'll continuously divide ourselves over everything um but I think
1: there's something to be said also that how the bible mentions that any kind of godly judgment that comes on the world starts with the church Mm
0: -hmm. yeah
1: and and Mm -hmm. I I
3: know um Malika you had some
1: experience with this that you wanted to share
3: oh yeah for me like growing up it was um it was a little difficult when it comes to like knowing what God says about who you are and then like living in this world, especially when it comes to this topic with race, because um, I know me and Leisha, we grew up very similarly where I was um, middle class, but I was still a black person. And so um, there were a lot of times where like I don't I don't think that I understood um, sometimes when um Black people say like, oh, the white man is putting me down or that type of mentality of like why they were in the situations that they were in. Because I knew like growing up, seeing my mom work so hard to get to where she was and knowing that... um, It is kind of the same similarity with you like, where if you work hard, you'll get the results and, um, you base things on that and not, um, just because of what someone looks like. Um, but then in the flip side, knowing that, um, God did create us a specific way for a specific reason. So no, I didn't ask to be this way. And so, yes, I would prefer not to be judged for those things, but that doesn't take away the fact that this is who I am and just navigating what my identity looks like in him and not, um, that sole fact that I am a specific color so and it was kind of a struggle too because I still like not that I didn't fit in but it was like okay I am this black person but I don't want my identity to be held in that but also um it is part of me so I think I wrestled a lot with acknowledging okay this is who I am as a person but not like be embarrassed or ashamed of certain things growing up
1: Identity. Identity is a huge conversation that everyone seems to be having right now, especially on social media. You know, social yeah. media seems like the new religion where you break yourself down into groups of either what you're oppressed by or what your skin color is or um, what hobbies you have or what hashtags you follow the most or or whatever it is, there's so many different ways of dividing us. And I don't think that's anything new for humanity. So I don't think that's because social media is here. Doesn't mean that's a new thing, Um, but it is hard to know. um, It's hard to know what opinions are our own that we learned through a critical thinking process and what opinions are downloaded into us from we inherited
0: a, them. Yeah. We
1: inherited <laughs> yeah. A, them or we downloaded them from our parents or, you know, wherever we went to school or whoever we follow on Instagram yeah. or whatever. Sometimes it gets confusing on. And I know we've talked about reading, you know, reading the Bible. And obviously when you listen to this podcast, that's going to be the main thing that we tell you is. Read your Bible, get in the word, you know, get involved in a community of people who can point you towards that biblical truth and you will get pointed in that direction. But um, I kind of want to wrap up here with one last question for you that maybe you can mull over a little bit. Um, So when we're talking about voices, our assumed voices of authority growing up our, our parents or the community that we know, but obviously as we mature, we find that they can often be misled in what they used to tell us and that yeah. what we just took as truth. And I know I've come to points in my life where I've had to reevaluate what someone told me without, you know, undermining or disrespecting them because they're still my parents. There's still authority in my life. And the Bible tells us to respect authority because God put all authority in our life. Yeah. So um, can you share a little bit about how you've gone through that critical thinking process in your life with your parents and even maybe voices of authority at your university, like professors or pastors or other leaders, because, you know, every human is fallible. So how do you check yourself to make sure your opinions are your own and not just what someone else downloaded into you?
0: Well, so first, I, I never want my opinion to be my own. I want it to be God's. And I think that's what we're getting at. Like I want, I want my opinion to be God's opinion. Right, right. Um, And we try hard to do that. And sometimes we fail miserably at that. Um, I think every generation has its blind spots that they don't realize, wow, I totally missed the mark here. But um, in that, um, I can, uh, I'll tell you a story. So, so growing up in more of a very poor uh, poverty, uh, white um, area, not, I'm not, not blasting my parents. I'm just saying like just the community that I was a part of, you know, like affirmative action things. Um, there was this bitterness that was definitely instilled because it, and, and, and I know the term reverse racism has its triggering points with things. Right. But if you look at racism by the nineties definition, um, it was like uh, this idea that um, we want people to be judged based on their character and in the workforce, when people will be judged based on their skill set, um, color shouldn't have anything to do with it, negative or positive. Um, but that, I mean, now I realize we can't ignore the racism that does happen at times, and we have to put some things in place to make sure that people aren't being forgotten, um, and that that racist business owners can, you know, and, and big businesses can't keep people down. But I'll tell you, growing up. Um, It was so frustrating hearing from people. I didn't get, and it was a quick, and and looking back, I'm sure it's a quick excuse, but uh, if somebody had more experience, more skills, but then they hired somebody of color, they were, it was like, I can't feed my family. I can't get a job um, when jobs are scarce because the company had to hire X amount of people of color and there was 90%, 99% white people, you know? And so there was this bitterness in our culture against these affirmative action, welfare, all these things, because growing up struggling tooth and nail to survive, um, to try to, you know, we're growing food on our land because we can't afford groceries all the time. We're chopping wood uh, to to heat our houses, but you know, because we can't afford to pay the, the heating bills. Um, And and, in Appalachia white culture, you know, someone starts saying white privilege has a hard problem because people coming up in poverty don't feel privileged. Right. And so I grew up in that and I I struggled with um, black voices because I I grew up in that culture where it was just like. It's almost almost a reverse of, of what the black voices are saying, the white man's keeping us down. And the the reverse side it says, "Well, like the liberals and their affirmative action stuff, they're keeping us down now. Um, We can't get ahead, um, and and all these things." And so, uh, those were some of the voices that were there. Um, But then, as I tried to go to college, where we couldn't afford to go to college, and I looked for, I looked for um, uh, any kind of uh, scholarships. I go through the scholarship books and I see five hundred. Um, things, if you're from India or Africa, or you're, you're, you're some kind of person of color, all of a sudden there's like $70,000 scholarships here. And, you know, but for me, because I'm white, I don't, you know what I mean? I don't fit into any of these special, special groups. And, and, and so I get lumped into the group with the wealthy white people. And then all these assumptions get made after me. And so that actually ingrained going like back in the early 2000 or, or, Or early 2000, like 10, 2000, 2009, you know, 2008 through 2009, 2010, it definitely kind of ingrained that feeling of frustration in my life because I got tired of people yelling at me, telling me I'm privileged. But like my Hispanic teacher um, uh, who taught the class, he said he had to learn how to talk white. And when he said that, I realized I had to learn how to talk white too. Because if I, man, if I go to a job interview and I sound Like this, they say white trash, you're not getting hired. And so I had to learn how to articulate. I had to learn how to speak with, um, I guess, sounding more educated than I really was. And so um, in that process, it just, you know, in that process, back again, looking, trying to get to school and we couldn't afford school, dropping out of school, being homeless, you know, going through that struggle, um, that really, to be honest, that really made that really kind of cemented in some of those beliefs that I heard. Um, and again, I didn't have a lot of black voices around me to challenge those and to help me understand it was just life experience. And it kind of matched up to what the ignorant, some of the ignorant people were saying. Um, but as I grew and as I said, Lord, I just, <laughs> I just want to love you. Show me how to love you. Um, and you start to hear you start, you, when you start to love people and get around people of a different color, it's different when you just think, oh, that's just a political voice or that's just a black voice. No, I, I just, I just got to know, um, perp. I just got to know, um, uh, Binta. I just got to know all these, you know, I, these wonderful, beautiful black people. And it's no longer when I hear their complaints, it's no longer just a, It's no longer just a uh, talking point. It is suffering from someone I love. And it's different when you love somebody. And I think this bitterness that we have in our country that has constantly made us divide ourselves over and over and over. We get in these echo chambers where all the black people are hearing the black voices. All the white people are hearing the white voices. But if we were just to take the time to get to know one another... When someone speaks out in suffering, it's not met with mocking and ridicule. It's met with, I'm not going to say I agree with you. You could be wrong, but I respect you and I love you. And I understand that you're suffering and I'm hearing you out. And I think that started to be the biggest challenge. The more black people I knew um, and my my mentor, he's a black man. Um, and that was the man who taught me how to be a pastor. Um, getting to know him and, and some of my perspectives changed uh, not that I assumed that he was black; he'd be X, Y, and Z, but just kind of how he viewed life and versus how I viewed life, and realizing that suffering is something that's common to that, that's common to all people groups. I know for myself, um, when I when when I, when George Floyd happened, all the white Republican people just freaked out and they had their own things to say. And then all the democratic or, 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 black voices started speaking out and they had this talking point to say, and I said, God, where are you at this? And so I had to, I wanted to listen to the people who were suffering and I wanted to help in any way that I can, even though I think there, I personally have some disagreements with some of the statements that are made. I have some disagreements with some of the logic that's being used. It's, it's not a time for, for that in the moment when someone's crying out, if they're legitimately crying out in pain. Um, and again, it's when the people stop being black people and they start, start being a person that I know, I'm not saying be colorblind. I'm just saying, get to know people beyond their color. And then when they are suffering, when they have a complaint, when they say a police is doing something, it's a little different when you're my friend and their injustice is being done to my friend versus, oh, that's just another black person complaining, uh, vice versa with white people. Um, you could look at me and say, "Well, you're a white person. That's why you succeed. That's why you do these things." But if you got to know me and heard my story, and, and uh, we were friends, uh, my voice would have a little more weight, and maybe there would be a little more understanding from my perspective instead of just saying, "Sit down, shut up, you're a white guy. You don't understand. You have no place to talk here." Um, so, in that, I guess um, as far as my my opinions have changed, there was a period of time of cementing in all those bad, ignorant thoughts, and then there was that time of love that caused me to challenge my own hardened opinions and my own biases and objections. Um, and uh, I guess now I'm, I'm not quite as uh, I liberals think I'm too Republican and the Republicans think I'm too liberal now, which might be a good thing or a bad thing. I don't know, but
1: that's right where Jesus <laughs> fit in. I'm pretty sure. Yeah.
0: And and I appreciate, you know, you guys inviting me. And I mean, again, I'm a, I'm a, I'm from the mountains. I'm a kind of a dumb hillbilly sometimes, but <laughs> Um, I appreciate you guys even asking me what I think, you know, um, and, and taking the time to listen. So I thank you for that. Um, But uh, yeah, no, I appreciate this opportunity.
1: Well, we know this conversation was long and heavy and maybe even convicting to some people who were listening to this, but we want to thank you so much from the bottom of our heart for being here for this and sitting through this. If you were really stirred by the conversations we were having and want to know a little bit more, there's two podcasts I'd like to refer you to to um, get to know this side of things a little bit more. Um, Critical race theory is uh huge hot button issue talking point that's out there right now. And I I really love the 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 education and the viewpoint that the podcast Southside Rabbi has on it. He just did a so it's K, KB and I Amin mean, and um They just did a masterclass on what is critical race theory and where it came from and how we as Christians can approach it instead of just being divisive with it. And there's another podcast that I love that talks about that and some other things as well uh, called the Just Thinking Podcast podcast with Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker. And both of those are coming from a Christian biblical standpoint. Um, Both are led by black men who have personal experiences in the matter and are very educated in theology and this critical theory idea. So um, if you want to know more, I would point you to those two podcasts. I think they're very informative and um, help us as Christians really learn how to approach these topics when we're watching maybe the news, no matter what side of the aisle we're on. Sometimes those talking points aren't exactly the most productive for us to approach them, especially with people who we f- we find it hard to have something in common with. Um, other than that, thank you so much for being here
3: and God bless. I miss saying this because it's been a while. Y'all take care now. <laughs>